Hello again, and welcome to this episode of the Unlimited Archives, my attempt to honour and preserve the memory of Unlimited Theatre, an oral history of the company, how we formed what we did and how we did it, or some of it at least, because 27 years is a long time, right? So this is my final conversation with a founder of the company. We have a full house now. It's my dear friend, the wonderful Claire Duffy, who was the last of my co-founders to leave the company in 2021 to focus on running her other company, the brilliant Civic Digits, based in her hometown of Edinburgh. Claire is the collaborator with whom I've probably made the most amount of work. She cast and directed me in the first play I was in at university. We travelled the world together with Unlimited. We co-wrote seven Christmas shows for the BBC's CBeebies channel together and I think of her as one of the wisest humans and most generous artists that I know. There's a small correction. When talking about our trip to Papua New Guinea, we refer to the conflict in Bougainville as having started over a tin mine. It was actually the Pangua copper mine. Detail is important, right? I sat down with Claire on a very hot day in summer 2023 for this conversation at her company office space in Edinburgh, and we had to keep the windows open. I hope you'll forgive and maybe even enjoy some of the background noise of other lives and work happening as we speak. Welcome to the show. We're glad you could make it. Let's go back to the beginning, Duffy. How do you remember Unlimited starting? Um, Chris Thorpe sat behind me in a potentially slightly creepy way. (laughs) And kind of breathed into my ear, do you want to be in a theatre company with me? (laughs) And Paul. And maybe Louisa, maybe he'd already asked Louisa. Um, Hang on, are you saying this was Thorpe's idea? Well, I came to, uh, my, my deal with myself when I came to university was that I would, because I wasn't sure whether I should go to art college or not, and I decided that I wouldn't go to art college and I would go to Leeds University, which I had a place for, on the understanding that I would set up a theatre company with the people that I would meet there. So I had the intention on my way to Leeds. So when Chris said, do you want to be in a theatre company with me and Paul and maybe Louisa? Because um, I remember Louisa, I remember Louisa sitting opposite, like, sort, of, sort of opposite me diagonally there and mm. Chris like, it's like I was sitting in this chair and he came and sat inside the chair with me. Um, when he said that, I was just kind of like, yeah, of course, that's why I'm here. <laughs> that was kind of my like attitude. The universe was speaking to you. <laughs> that's what I wouldn't you... call Crystal the universe. <laughs> The, the universe was speaking through Crystal. The energy of the it was universe just supposed was speaking to be. through Crystal. Yeah, I was time. just you kind of like it's a, yeah, it's one of those things. I just I felt like that was that was what I had to do. That's cool. I didn't. I never knew that 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 was something you'd always made a deal with yourself. Mm. That's cool. Okay, so that was nineteen ninety six. No, so that would have been nineteen ninety four. So that was like in your second year. Or maybe 95. I think second year. I think we knew that we wanted to start a company. Like maybe at the end of the second year. I think it feels like we knew that we were going to start a company when we were in our final year. Mm. And it's been, so that would be 
the idea of Unlimited for you is basically 30 years old. Mm-hmm. Nearly, be 20, yeah. say, let's say it's 29 years this year. And you've only left the company two years ago. Why left, in inverted commas? Have I not never not, leave. No, really, okay. <laughs> yes. You can Fair say enough. you've gone, yeah. but it's always yours. That's how I've always thought about it. It's like there's something interesting to me about it's the founders of the company. It's their company and everyone else is just a custodian of it in the meantime. Or yeah. So there's a lot of stuff that has happened. What are your favourite or most vivid memories well, I have to say that I guess the first image that comes to mind is you dress up as a giant penis, <laughs> jumping up and You've down. you planning that. <laughs> no, it just genuinely is. Like, it's the, it's the uh, very first thing that always comes up if I was to be asked that question. And the reason is for... It really? Yeah, it's absolutely. <laughs> the reason for it is because it, is, it was hilarious, um, but also... We did that. Less hilarious inside that costume. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like all of the costumes were horrible and sweaty in that period. Like it was much worse being a fruit dancing around. Stick uh, with the penis. <laughs> <laughs> um, Why well, the reason it was so hilarious. the reason that well, it was hilarious because you were in you 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 were a human sized penis, and we'd created this out of bubble wrap. And withies, probably, because yeah. that's what we made everything mm-hmm. with. So we constructed this phallus out of withies and covered it with bubble wrap and then sprayed it pink. And then you just sort of like jumped around outside the school, the student union. And I was Miss Pill and I was dressed up in a kind of very sort of tweedy suit. Mm-hmm. And I was giving out sexual health flyers. And we got paid some money to do that. Paul was. Chlamydia. He was. <laughs> <laughs> I don't he, remember the costume for that. I think I he think was a ballerina. Just, mm. I feel like he must have been a ballerina. I, f- I feel was like were any of the others in it? I don't no, remember. Was, no, no. and I'd forgotten that Paul was involved in that actually. But just, why were we doing this, Stuffy? Because we were earning some money, and it was for a good cause. Yeah, but I think this is. Uh, I think it's important to recognise that you always, you were always very passionate. This was for World AIDS Day. Oh, uh, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So every year, for quite a lot of years, you always instigated us doing something for World AIDS Day. Oh, I didn't remember. I don't remember that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I ran the LGBTQ youth group in mm-hmm. Leeds. It, it was in existence before I became a youth worker there, but I took it on and I ran that for good and ill <laughs> for four years. So that was a really formative experience for me doing that. Mm. But the reason why I always think of, of that, apart from it being really funny, is that a couple of years later, I think maybe after a show when we were on tour, we started talking about it and we just laughed so hard. And it was one of those. So it's the, it's the remembering and the laughing about it that I really remember as well. I don't know, maybe we were on tour with Neutrino or something like that. And we were in what would, would now be an Airbnb type cottage Mm. somewhere to stay overnight on tour and we were drinking and we started talking about the the crazy shit that we'd done in order to kind of keep the company going and we started talking about that and I just remember one of those moments where you're laughing so hard you can't stop and everything hurts so that's why it's the first memory that's beautiful 
And there is, because there's a, there's a lot of stuff that we've done. It's difficult to, it's going to be impossible to sort of document, record all of the projects, all of the things, including like the little things, but the amount of care and love that went into doing something like World AIDS Day. And for a relatively small amount of money, oh, yeah. the amount of work that went into making yeah. those costumes. Well, I'm still doing that same, I'm still making that mistake <laughs> 30 years later, you know. I'm still, you know, anyway, that's another story. Rinsing budgets. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, doing stuff because you think it's really cool and just about getting paid for the work you're doing rather than bringing in money to your core, which is my challenge these days. Can't tell you how satisfying it is that your vi most vivid favourite memory of 30 years of work, which includes travelling the world and going to all sorts of extraordinary places with shows and awards and <laughs> big fancy openings... <laughs> that time <laughs> you made me dress up as a penis mm. um, but you must have some other memories Claire I do have many <laughs> many other memories I often dine out on the story when um, there was gunshot behind us when we uh, mm -hmm. when we did static in um, Papua New Guinea in Papua New Guinea well no but Bougainville mm. yeah I've dined out on that story many a time it's a good one do you want to share it we can do it together if you like yeah, we could. So Bougainville was a, an island, is an island that got into a civil war in the mid-90s, as far as I remember, um, over the tin mines, I think it was. Really terrible civil war that ripped the country apart. And by the time we were asked to visit in 2000 and... In 2000? No, it must have been 2002, I think. Anyway. So 2001-2. So 2001-2, we are doing a two-hander written by Chris Thorpe, which is about an arrogant young man making a journey across the city. And simultaneously, a woman goes to find the body of her dead husband in a civil war. And it's just two people in black um, suits stand uh, standing next door to each other and doing an interlacing monologue. And in Bougainville, we were invited to do this in the women's refuge that had been created. It had just Be been opened, yeah, by the UN, I think. I don't know that... Well, I think it may be a little bit more established. It was relatively well established. It was established enough for it to have caused... to be causing issues within the community. So it was presented by lots of men mm -hmm. in the community. And I suppose, like, the situation was that there were a lot of mercenaries who had been uh, enlisted on one side of the Civil War. I don't really remember, kind of, like, what the sides were and how... It played out in terms of people who were indigenous and mm -hmm. all of that, I don't remember. But I remember them talking about them being a lot of mercenaries who hadn't been shipped out when like, the peace was called. And so, so there was a lot of tension, as you'd imagine, and it's a small place. And where we were performing had been the central, had been the capital, and it had been completely taken over by jungle. And we flew down in a helicopter. We did. And we saw at least two whales mm -hmm. through the window of, um, of that helicopter. And I feel like I, it was two whales and a baby whale. So I might be making that up. Just to <laughs> I was be... too terrified. I'm terrified of flying at the best but of But you were the one who's pointed. You were like, look was at it? that. And I was like, yeah, I fucking know. 
<laughs> I can see it. Well, I'm glad that you remember because I had no recollection of that. And now I know that I saw a whale from the chopper. That's cool. Yeah, it was amazing. Okay. It was amazing. I'm pretty sure it was a baby whale and two grown-up whales. And we went down and it was amazing. And there was a really amazing female journalist who was really great, who looked after us. I don't remember her name. I won't say Janice for some reason. And anyway, so we're doing the show in this place, which is torn apart by civil war. And we've been told by this UN chief, you know, army chief, that is. Gen he was a general. General, was yeah, he? Yeah. That what they did was they had an amnesty for firearms. And so there was like a, a container in the forest where everybody was allowed to just kind of go and put their arms and then they'd lock it up. And then things would get a bit hot again and some and people would just break into the box and take the I don't believe take the gun. They this just is, left it in the forest. That's that's what I remember. <laughs> I don't think I would have made that up. We'll have to ask Chris. He would that's the sort of, I love the idea that there would be a box just in the forest. Well not a box, you know, like a container you can yeah, imagine yeah, yeah. like a, a crate <clears throat> container I thing. About the anyway, yeah, yeah. So so we knew that there was a lot of arms about, we knew that the um that the women's refuge had caused a lot of issues because there were all of these men who didn't have anything to do all day. It was a dry city, so you, were, you weren't allowed to have any alcohol in the city, but obviously people can make their own mm. in their own back gardens. So we'd started doing the show. And it's worth saying, the show's quite odd. Like in the middle of the jungle, there's you and me stood wearing black suits. And we're just speaking. There's no like, there's very little action in the show. It's all there's words. There's no, no action. And I remember when Apart we got there like as well. Apart from like some choreographed <laughs> hand movements yeah. or looking down and looking back up again. Yeah. But I remember as well, there was, we got there and we, th that journey was a big journey to get there, both from the UK through the Philippines to there, to them both. One of the few journeys where you didn't lose a suit. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I made it all the way there with my suit. Um, but the... Oh, there, were, there was like, when we got there, and I'd, I'd said, I remember saying, so who's coming to this event tonight? Mm -hmm. And they were like, well, it would be us. And I said, but what about the people that live here? And they said, oh, no, 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 we, we don't want any of that. And I was like, I'm not coming all this fucking way to just stand here weirdly in my suit and talk to UN generals and British high commissioners. I remember going out into the street, and I remember them going, no, no, don't do that. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I'm trying to, about... We went out. But there was definitely an audience of locals, yeah, wasn't there? because we brought them in. We were like, oh, right, yeah, okay. there's this thing happening. Would you like to come in? I think so. There was already like a nervousness oh. from the people that were hosting for this. I think they knew that that's because we've been told that's it was, what it was for. So I remembered that it was for the women who were in the. But yeah, but it wasn't just women who were in the audience. No. I remember talking to the audience afterwards and there was like some youngish people like student age, early 20s type people who had been sent to America during the Civil War. Mm. So it was that kind of thing of, yeah. So it's a very strange How experience for How kind of like educated and sort of like wealthy, really, mm. the local population were mm. alongside... Then fighters. All, all sorts of other stuff yeah, yeah. was going on. So it was, it was a really, really, it's difficult to describe how strange a sort of atmosphere it was, mm -hmm. but in, not in a bad way, but just like odd for everyone because there's these people that come in and they're doing something strange and we're going, we're not really sure what the vibe is here between the politicians, the, the, the British High Commissioner and then people that live here. And then about halfway through the show. 
Yeah, and then about halfway through the show, there starts being some shouting going on behind, behind us. Behind us, and the the women's refuge is surrounded by a wire fence with some barbed wire on the top of it. Um, so pretty flimsy, and certainly not uh, you know that difficult to get over. And so it's a male voice. There's some shouting. Don't know what it is that he's be- that he's saying. And there was gunshot, wasn't there? There was a couple of gunshots. There was a couple of gunshots. And I remember my thought process at the time was because we didn't stop. We carried on. <laughs> All the way through it. Because we're stood didn't, next didn't, to, we're stood next to each other. We never look at each other during the show. Uh-huh. But I do remember stood next to you and sort of just t- turning a little bit to see, Claire, right? <laughs> Is this okay? Yeah. And so what was going through my head at the time was I was looking at the general yeah, yeah. on the front row. I was looking at him and I was just thinking, right, if he moves even like a muscle, I'm just going to throw myself flat on the floor. That's what I'm going to do. He moves, I'm down. That's it. And then I'll take it from there. I remembered him just sort of sitting up a little straighter. Because I, right, okay, because I don't, he, I was just, I was only... Long enough to make it concerning. Yeah, right, okay. Any more concerning than it already was. Yeah, no, I just kind of thought, like, I'm just going to put all my trust in the guy who's, Mm. like, military and in charge and yeah and then nothing happened whoever it was wandered off and then afterwards we went for i think an illegal drink at one of the um ngo people's Mm. flats which was very needed and the british high commissioner said do you know for one moment then i thought i was going to have two dead actors on the lawn (laughs) i remember him saying that as well i was like what (laughs) oh great (laughs) That would have been all right, would it? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. But that show took us to a lot of places, right? So Static went to Los Angeles, mm-hmm. Papua New Guinea, the Philippines, Zimbabwe. Berlin. Berlin. That was it, isn't it? Was it? It feels like so. it must have gone to other places, but maybe not. But, yeah, that was a good show. On an ordinary day, I wouldn't notice the sky. <laughs> that was the first line. That was your first line. That was my first line, yeah. Yeah. I used to have this weird thought that if I was ever, I don't know why I would ever be locked up, that the only text that I would have in my head <laughs> would be static, like Chris Thorpe, which was a bit annoying because I'd much, you know, why, why can't it be... One of yours. N- no, <laughs> not, definitely not. One of mine. Why, you know, why can't it be, I don't know, some really nice poetry or something, <laughs> but no. Rather than... But I don't think I've got it in my head anymore. I don't think... I, I've ev- I haven't even got that. I've got maybe one one verse of O Tortum in oh, my head. Really? That's it. Do you know what? Chris sent me a picture recently saying, do you know where I am? And it was the outside of Pleasance above where we did that show for the first time, I think. So it's where the audience would have queued up to that get in. That was Bridget in. who did it the first time. Bridget played the part of the woman. Oh, no. No, you did. I No, we're not in she Edinburgh. She played it in Edinburgh. Did she? Yeah. Oh. I played it when we did it um, at the Studio Theatre in Leeds. Yeah, yeah. And then subsequently after that. And then, no, and then Bridget did it because I had ME. Yeah. And that was my year out. That was then. Okay. And Bridget <clears throat> played the woman. And then I played the woman the when next year. we went year. overseas and stuff. Oh, okay. Well, I think it still stands that the reason that he sent me that picture and 
he said, do you know where I am? And it, I just sent him a message back saying, on an ordinary day, I wouldn't notice the sky. And it's yeah. like it triggered for me immediately. But I loved how hard I had to listen to you or Bridget. So that's Bridget Escold, who also was in that show, just telling that story every day. I used to love the sort of mindfulness and the work of really deeply listening to someone else tell their own story. Yeah. So getting shot at and me as a penis. Mm -hmm. Two standout moments. <laughs> what about, I don't know, there's so many things that I feel like you in particular led us through and achieved. So you wrote... Freak out. <laughs> It's interesting to me that you would say, I mean, Freak Out was a big part of it, but that was part of the school's work that we did that was a really, really Well, it kept us going financially for three years, didn't it? Yeah. But as a writer, you wrote Wise Maids and then what turned into Clean, which spanned then a whole spin-off of two characters that Lou and Liz played, Anne and Mag, that became yeah. performance art characters. Mm -hmm. you, did sh you wrote Shades, which is one of my all-time favourite shows, which then became The Moon, The Moon. Um, Money the Game Show. I mean, so many things that I feel are really beautiful things. But you've, I've not heard you describe yourself as a writer today. Mm, I haven't described myself as anything in that kind of field, really. I've just told you about. So how would I describe myself? Yeah. I think uh, generally when I talk to people, it's kind of one of the things that sort of works because Civic Digit sits in this sort of intersectional place between technology and storytelling mm. and drama, I'm quite often talking, and, 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 and a lot of what we do is around cybersecurity, mm. like a lot of like real nuts and bolts stuff around cybersecurity. So I often find myself talking to people who really understand cybersecurity and selling the work to them and so I do quite often say well so I'm a playwright mm -hmm. that's the first thing that I learned how to do and that's kind of my core skill mm. more so a theatre maker director and a producer and I'm the director of Civic Digits so that's kind of how I introduce yeah. myself generally because yeah so I, I center the practice of writing plays mm when I'm talking about the work that I'm doing, because that's kind of our, you know, she does inverted commas, unique selling point, you know, mm -hmm. you know. I would also describe you as a really wonderful director and dramaturg. You like to uh, yeah, do quite a bit of dramaturg. Workshop leader. <laughs> but that comes from like a really deep, you, you're Dr. Claire Duffy as well. I am Dr. Claire Duffy, yeah. Because you've literally written a PhD on storytelling. Oh, now see if I can remember the title of my PhD. Um, writing a queer time and space, playwriting a queer time and space, something like that. So you're this deep story specialist for me, and that's something that I massively value and admire about you being able to work in any context for telling stories as a writer, as a director, as a dramaturg, as a workshop leader, and also I think how you tell the story of the company that we made. I think just the, as we've gone, along over many many years what is the story that's being told of us working together inside mm -hmm. of, uh, making all of all of these very disparate often quite odd things they can go from being shows which take months of rehearsals and planning and uh, devising to get up and then have a run but they can also be uh, a project for world aids day or they can also be uh, a program of work for young people from whatever background i suppose i just want to celebrate how 
brilliant you are at Thank all of those much. things and how important it's been, how the company came from you and Chris, <laughs> you manifesting unlimited in your imagination, <laughs> yeah. Chris speaking through the universe. <laughs> So then actually, then the practicalities asked, of doing it. Yeah, I think he asked Louisa first. I feel like, yeah, Louisa was in on it. And then it was the four of us, wasn't it? It was John, Chris, me and Lou. Paul. Oh, sorry, yeah, Paul, Chris, me and Lou. Because yeah. we were all in the same year in the theatre studies. And then you and Liz joined us in 97. Yeah. Do you want to talk about Money the Game Show? Yeah. Because I feel like Money the Game Show was a big, was a big deal. Yeah. For you, it's the first show, I think it's the first show you directed. I think it might have been the first show that I directed for money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I directed five shows for my PhD. Oh, okay. So... So you'd had some practice. So I had started doing that. And I worked quite a bit with Lucy Ellingson on those shows. I think she was in, she was in at least two of them. Maybe she was just in two of them. And these were your bench shows? Yeah, my bench shows. Yeah. Where Lucy would sit on a bench. No, I would sit on a you bench. You would sit on a bench. Yeah, I would sit on a bench for 24 hours over the space of a week and write down as much as I possibly could about what I saw happening in, the, in that space. And then I would use that sort of raw, what I now see as obviously raw data. <laughs> I didn't think about it in those terms then, but I was collecting data from the bench about the everyday life outside the theatre where the show was going to be put on. And then I would turn that raw data into a play and then invite an audience. And Lucy was in two of them. And that was very lovely. And in fact, I was working with Lucy and Lou on the one that I did for Homotopia in Liverpool when I got the phone call from Jackie Wiley saying, we've decided to let you have a go at making money the game show at the Arches, because mm. it, it was a directing award that I'd pitched for called Platform 18, mm -hmm. I think it was. So the Arches, which used to be um, a theatre venue in Glasgow, very cool theatre venue that would produce kind of all of the kind of new up and coming theatre makers and live artists. We did Shades there. We did do Shades there. Which would have been in 1998. Yeah. And I think some Stephen Bottoms, who became my first supervisor for my PhD, wrote a really, really terrible review of it. Twice. And you told him that. <laughs> so I think you wrote directly to him and just like were quite inappropriately rude at him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> we were just like... Oh. <laughs> so yes, I was making the Homotopia version of um, Local Reality Expo, which was what this series of plays was called, when I got the phone call saying that I'd been given one of the awards. There was two awards. And what did you do with that? So this became Money the Game Show. The premise to which I always adored. I thought this was such a great premise. Do you want me to say what the premise yeah, was? Yeah, do it. So you, the, the audience are invited um, to the show and they are divided into two and they're each given um, a hedge fund manager turned performance artist and they're taken on separate routes into the theatre space and en route their hedge fund manager turned performance artist tells them 
we're going to be playing with £10,000 of real money. You can't take this money home with you, but if we lose, I will kill myself. And that's what happened in the play. The play taught the audience how hedge fund management worked while telling the story of the financial crisis of 2007-8. And the way that the show taught the audience was, so they were in two teams, they had to do a series of things which kind of mimicked the process of hedge fund management. So first of all, they had to put some money into their funds and then they had to um, bet. You bet. had to go long, go, go short. Going long like and going short. Balloons. So you could blow up a balloon. Whose balloon would get the biggest in 30 seconds? Who could pop the balloon the quickest? Um, or keep the balloon up in the air the longest. Keeping the balloon up in the air. That was how long you had. That was what determined how long you had to get money into your fund. Yeah. And oh, I yeah, love yeah. that. So beautiful seeing those actors keeping that soap balloon in the air while Nick Cave sings in the background. Just love <laughs> and it. an audience, someone from the audience would frantically be, be shoveling money yeah. into a Shoveling into real a pound suitcase. coins yeah, yeah. Yeah, and running backwards and forwards because it was on the money was on one side of the stage and the case was on the other and side of quickly, the stage. And quickly people got really heavily invested. Oh yeah, that. crazy. It so perfect as an analogy to it. Like it was almost too on the nose. But it's like seeing people immediately become super competitive. I'm going to win. And all the time, we should be going. <laughs> there was like a review that wrote a criticism of this going, it fails to land its point because people are really enjoying it. It's like, I think that is the point. The point is how easy it is. Well, the review become... that I like to remember is the one from Ben, Ben, somebody from the New York Times who said, like, it's frankly quite disturbing yeah. how much everybody is so invested in it. And it totally demonstrates why it happens. Yeah. Because... When you're in the game, you don't care about when the music's going to stop. You just want to keep playing the game. Yeah. And that was the whole point of the, well, that was the analysis of why it happened alongside other things. So that really taught me a lot, that show. The thing as well, sorry, that show, but people forgot as well that the hedge fund manager turned performance artist, the, the deal is that they will kill themselves. So everyone gets so immersed in playing it, everyone forgets. And then when it comes, what I love about it, like that final act is well, I'm going to have to kill myself now. And it's like, oh, really? No, you're not. Well, you can't do that because it's not real. We're in a theatre. But also, we don't want to talk about that. And no, no, that was the deal. One of us is going to have to die. And it was, mm -hmm. um, oh, it was whoever. Had, yeah, so whoever had lost. Yeah, whoever, whoever's, whichever side of the, whichever team lost, their hedge fund manager had to kill themselves and they killed themselves with tomato sauce yeah. and Mozart and but it was, then they became a zombie. <laughs> they became a zombie. And I do remember... Because we opened it at the bush, um, it was Madney Eunice's first season, and him and Omar were really supportive of the show, and it was brilliant. It sold out for that whole time, and then went on tour, and was... got an extension as well, which mm. was nice. But it was made I originally at the Arches, going, then coming, and going the uh, the zombie bit when when they become a zombie. Can we talk about that? <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's good, isn't it? <laughs> but it started at the Arches. Yeah, it started at the Arches. So it was a show that I made for the Arches, and that was five thousand pounds. The whole mm -hmm. the whole production was made for five thousand pounds. So that was partly the reason, you know, part of the satire, if you like, of the piece was saying to the audience, "This production costs five thousand pounds, and here it is. Yeah. Here's the five thousand pounds on the stage. We're gonna 
play with it. See, this is what it looks like. It doesn't look like a lot, it turns out, does it? Ten thousand pounds we went up to for yeah. the the london run and even no it doesn't like, look like a lot pretty small pile of pound coins yeah it's 10 grand and yeah. um, i'm going to talk to rick at some stage as part of this process who was the producer on it mm -hmm. and uh i know that one of the both the strange one of the most painful things he's had to do is to organize getting ten thousand pounds in oh, coins yeah. to all the places it needed to be yeah i love that show What are the things that you think made Unlimited successful? Well, I suppose there was a good combination of different talents that were all pulling in the same direction for you know a significant amount of time. And not only that, but I think we played to strengths. I think there was a recognition that we need to sort of split our time into doing the things that, that the company needs us to do. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, so my recollection of it is that Louisa and I did a lot of work on the sort of like community creative learning side mm -hmm. and brought in quite a lot of money in terms of like funding from those kinds of organisations that fund that kind of thing, like Comic Relief. So there was sort of like income stream through that while we were, we hadn't had any success in making a show. Because the first show that we tried to make together, I can't even remember what it was called now. It's the one with the big drapes and the cityscape on the bottom. Do you remember that show? And we went to Babel. Babel, yeah. So we were kind of we were floundering around a little bit artistically at the beginning, and Liz was really good in terms of all the organisational side of things. And then we said, I think Annie from the work from the, the studio theatre maybe gave us the commission or maybe just gave us a space anyway for some reason we had the opportunity to to make another show and that's when chris wrote static and i wrote some crazy shit beasts beasts oh my god that was the most nuts anyway so we did the two hand we, we did this kind of two plays in one night and one of them was static and that was like a hit from the beginning mm. and that went to Edinburgh and we did No Brave World before that okay yeah, yeah we did No Brave World which you know was not very clear as a piece of art didn't have a very clear intention or thing to I think say interest is to hear when I spoke to Paul he described that show really clearly and what it was and what it and what the intention was right and it's really really interesting mm -hmm. the difference from being outside it and him doing that sort of directing pulling together job on it and being inside it. So I remember in the devising process, you had a whole thing where you were an orange that had an orgasm. Yes, in, in a pile of newspapers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Again, just a little detail that no one will ever know. Was that part of the process of No Brave World? Yeah, yeah there's yeah. No Brave World. <laughs> like, what was that about? Because it was based on, it was, it was kind of loosely based on Look Back in Anger. And it was sort of, we were trying to explore what anger was. I felt very alienated from that process. Mm. I didn't. I didn't feel like we found out what we were doing. No, it's part of the process of us working out how to work together. I think. Yeah. Was Shades not before Static as well? It may have been. Yes, probably it was. What's your memory of Shades? Because again, not like it was. Maybe it was a bit more. 
That's going to be an annoying beep, Alice. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was a bit clearer what the... It was a bit clearer in terms of storytelling, but not really. And that came out of a devising process as well, wasn't it? Jo um, Paul and I worked together, uh, and I was being a writer, mm. and we were devising it together. And I was both writing and also kind of transposing. Mm. I loved that show. I thought that was really clear for me. That was always about perceptions, what is reality, mental health, love, loss, grief. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what it was trying to be about. But narratively, like dramaturgically, it needed a lot of work. Well, we were all still young as artists, weren't we? But it became, or we revisited that. Yeah. You, me and Chris. Yeah in 2000 and i'm gonna say seven or eight yeah around and it then became a new version the moon the moon which was yeah. narratively much clearer it was much clearer because by that it's, stage it's, it's, you we were... never we never really landed it though yeah. in my opinion i know what you mean and also it's like but i think that's part of what which it I is think... to make work collaboratively yeah absolutely you yeah. don't have one person going it is this or like really being able to commit to it it could be this and, and working out how it could be this and really following it through because we always ended up I mean yeah co-writing kind of co-writing kind of isn't a thing in my opinion having done it for 20 years I don't think it really works works but I think that's the I'm just to finish but I the the moon the moon I thought was quite close to nailing that also because like formally it was meant to be a bit strange so like it got away with not quite landing its narrative, although I think the narrative was pretty clear, but it got away with it because it was allowed to be strange. It was about really what is real, whose understanding of reality mm -hmm. are we meant to trust yeah. here? So there was that, but then you're right about the, because the last thing that I think we co-wrote together, like really, you, me and Chris, would have been The Noise, which yeah. was 2013. What was it? Yeah, by which stage I think we were in a, well, what's your memory of like the, the collaborative process of writing that? Mm. I think that was when we were part of that process happened when we were staying in a place near where Chris thought comes from oh yeah and it was when Chris's dad died you know you're right we were he'd, staying he'd, gone Chris's to... dad died that week yeah that we were supposed to be working together um in a place near where he comes from so it ended up just being the two of us with Chris kind of popping in yeah, and yeah. just kind of like having a chat, not really working on it that week. So that I think that, I mean, that was only a week and the pro of a process which probably took about two years. Yeah, I think sort of, I remember thinking that we'd come to the end of that experiment of trying to write together, sort of after finishing that. So I don't have a specific, I don't have a quickly accessible specific memory of the process other than that week when Chris's dad died. Uh -huh. But I do remember feeling like, I think I feel like we've tried everything now. My memory is that we, recognising that it had been quite hard writing together or working, making something together with the moon, the moon a few years before that, I think we were working to a clearer brief with this one. So it was a commission from Northern Stage. Erica Wyman, who was the artistic director there at the time, had said, you came here a couple of years ago with two shows, which were Tangle and... We also did the ethics of progress there. She said a whole audience of younger people came here and we sold out those weeks and they've never come back. Oh, is that why? Well, that's you, really interesting. Can you, oh, can you do nice. that again? And I was like, well, 
Probably not. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how that worked. Also, we're a little bit older. Um, but yeah, but at the time, the whole Scandi Noir TV shows yeah. were a big thing. That's so nice to hear about Tangle and the ethics of progress. Probably Tangle is probably one of the most, in my, probably the thing that I think we were most successful at co-writing. Possibly, or maybe... The, what was the one about the the stranger who rides Zero on the beach? Zero degrees and drifting. Zero degrees and drifting. Yeah, yeah. And they were definitely they had a strong narrative going through them, but were still odd enough. Yeah, like they didn't make a huge. There's still always a thing where people go, "What the fuck happened there?" But I think that was what we were interested in as well. Yeah, which is totally legitimate. Yeah, yeah it's just that feeling of kind of like if that yeah a bit kind of feeling like it all holds together really and sort of. I think probably Tangle, that's, yeah, I think my mem my feeling is that Tangle and Zero Degrees were probably the most successful as pieces of writing, mm -hmm. not necessarily as shows, but, but maybe as Because I directed them, shows. you're saying that I fucked them up. No. <laughs> <laughs> they were really well written, and then once they became... No. I'm just thinking dramaturgically rather than no I'm not making uh, I'm not making any comment about that. No, I mean I think they probably I think maybe they're my favourite proper like uh, unlimited shows as like shows that were made by because there was more of us involved as well with yeah, Tangle yeah. and Zero Degrees. Well, so Louisa maybe, and Liz were still around for Zero yeah. Degrees, and then it was you, me, Liz, and Chris for Tangle. Was Louisa not there for Tangle mm, at all? No. Okay. But going back to the noise. Yeah. So we started with having recognised that it had become quite difficult working together. This is my recollection that we started with this idea of, well, let's write a thriller. And that would allow us to, and you had at the time, I think, started your PhD. So, uh, and what year was it? 2000 and. No, that was the year I, was, I would have been finishing my PhD. So, 13. I think. No, like when we. Well, yeah, so uh, when it got. When I think. It got, when it got produced, it was 2013, but we would have started making it in yeah. 2000 and probably 10 or 11. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, I was in the middle of PhD. But you were, you were big into the hero's journey, narrative structure, and um, just the way that you... All stories have that structure through them. It's the call to adventure, where you establish the ordinary world, the call to adventure, um, restatement of the call and all those. Because I remember that was like a little workshop that you led us through going, you know, if we're going to do a thriller, a classic thriller, it should have these elements to it. And we tried to write it according to that. But I think that, I remember having a conversation with you as well, at some stage towards the end of that process, and maybe with Chris, where we, not easily, <laughs> but got to a place of recognition that we're all probably at a stage as artists now where we we feel like we know what's best and we could if it were me making this what I would do now is this mm -hmm. and so there was less sort of comfort with what would be seen as compromise for something that we could all gather around mm. just trying to think where money the game show fitted in to that sequence of shows so that would have been the year, that would have been produced the year before The Noise, but you made that essentially on your own because you developed it yeah, I did make, at The yeah, Arches. Yeah, I wrote it and produced it the first time around at The and Arches. it was just then that Madden came to me and said, have you got anything? 2011. Yeah. So, that was, so I had made Money the Game Show before The Noise. Yeah, we would have been making The Noise at the same time as you were making yeah, The Show. Yeah, because I think, do you remember we had a Christmas, we had a week working together in a farmhouse somewhere, kind of Christmas time, and that's, I remember saying, oh, I've got this gig and I'm going to 
write a show for the arches and that might have been for the noise in the peak district yeah yeah because they happen concurrently and the and i knew that you were making money so it was when madney came and said have you got anything that you could do and i was like when madney phoned you yeah i had made money yeah it, it was already a thing and had reviews yeah so i said you should look at money the game show it's brilliant and then i think you must have rewritten it for that I re no, I I did I did a, a, a rewrite because it was originally a fifty minute show, and it became an hour and a half. Yeah, yeah. For the bush. So then, alongside that, we were making the noise. But I think the noise was the last thing that we made collaboratively, right? Yeah. With unlimited. Yeah, well, I was pregnant in two thousand and fourteen. Is that when Hamish was born? He was born in January fifteen. Wow. Mostly, even though we were still running the company together, you and Chris were sort of comp- like three months a year working with the company and we were but it became we had much 10 more. weeks wasn't it yeah, it yeah. 10 weeks a year and it plus then whatever any of those projects turned into but my memory is that from there in I got to work with you on the CBB shows and that felt like a really interesting fun productive clear relationship that you and I were able to do about you writing and me directing me being able to get involved in the writing but really Claire can look after the storytelling here but the projects from After the Noise were like, they started to become our own projects, really. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I was pregnant and then I was having Hamish and then I had Hamish. I came back to work when Hamish was six months to write Arctic Oil for the for the Traverse as part of my IASH residency. So for what I was doing with Unlimited at that time, I don't think there was really anything. No. You asked me to read a book about an astronaut while I was on maternity leave. Um, I can't remember what that was for. That must have been for a project. I don't know. What were you working on? That must have been the Astro Science Challenge. So we were making the Astro Science Challenge as well, which was like the interactive app-based adventure for children on space and science. Oh, yeah. You started working on Nervous, did you? Was that later? That was later. Yeah, I was working on Nervous at the February 2020. The Giant and the Bear? The Giant and the Bear. That was 2012. So, like, The Moon, The Moon, The Noise, Money, The Game Show, The Giant and the Bear, there was, like, three or four years where it was... There was a lot of projects happening. Yeah, I mean, what I want to say now is that I remember you and Chris coming over to my house when I was pregnant. I think it was, like, Christmas time, and we had a meeting... And I remember thinking, that's the last time that Chris is going to be part of Unlimited. Mm. You made the show with Chris about heart attacks. Am I dead yet? Yeah. Yeah. That's what you were doing while I was pregnant and having Hamish. That makes sense. Then why we were making that show, me and him, because you were Arctic oiling, but also becoming a mama. Yeah. So I was there for the first meeting of that. And I remember talking through the the yes. the idea of it in that cafe and saying these are, this is why I think this is a good idea um you and then that really liking I, the songs part of it as well I remember you talking about the songs are there to lighten the load okay see yeah. clever wise good dramaturgy don't remember I do um yeah I remember that meeting at my house and being very pregnant and thinking I think that's the last time Chris is gonna be at one of those meetings mm. But it took about two years for that to actually happen. Yeah, yeah. Because I think, was it 2000? Yeah, it was. It must have been 2017 when we had that big meeting. 
because you were rehearsing at Soho Theatre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you were doing the show at Soho Theatre, maybe. Can you say that big meeting? That big meeting where we just where Chris said that he had left the company. Mm. That was hard. That conversation, right? Mm. We had a brilliant facilitator, Jean, a very experienced coach. who very generously agreed to reduce her day rate significantly. Did she? But she had conversations with each of us before we came into it, and she was really clear that this was a grieving process. And it was like, oh, did she say that? Yeah, yeah. She was talking about it about being a grieving process. That you know, there's going to have to be room here for people to to grieve the loss of what this is because it's about moving on, which is which was obviously interesting at a time when we were making a show about death and dying as well. And yeah, it was like three days of like workshops or maybe two days of us having that conversation to get to a place where... Because mm. we'd always said as well, I don't know if you remember this, we'd said, look, it started with six of us. The point at which there's just two of us left, is there any point in us continuing to do it? And then Chris left, but we did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess it was... That it was it was up to you what you wanted to do. From my point of view, it was up to you what you wanted to do because I was now a mum, mm-hmm. and I didn't have the capacity yeah, yeah. anymore. I was making the big data show. Yeah, so I did the first sharing of the big data show in the spring of seventeen at the science festival. And was it a, was it an unlimited supported so, project yeah. at that stage? Well, so yeah. that's how we were keeping it. So going. I so that was my project that I was yeah. doing. With, that was kind of like the bit of the you know the ten weeks mm-hmm. that was allocated via unlimited to me. That's what I was doing. So I was doing that, and that was it. That was all. That was my capacity. But you and I were still working up. at this time as well. So I suppose maybe to me it felt like we were still working together in a way that made sense of the unlimited thing, because we were making the CBB shows. All oh, right. Yeah. Maybe. Because yeah. Because we were making the CBB shows. So that was you know. A, I mean, it wasn't a lot of work. It was three. I think it. It would be about three or four weeks of writing for me, and then you would direct them. It was more work for me, so maybe I felt more, I don't know, connected. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was having to represent a lot of what we were talking about as artists back to people at the BBC. So what was where were we at? We were talking about that meeting where Chris verbalised that thought that I'd had two years earlier when I was very pregnant and just mm-hmm. kind of going, well wasn't subconscious because I remember it so it was a conscious thought but it was not something that I felt in any way moved to do anything about for whatever reason mainly because I was pregnant and just focusing on that priorities so it was more kind of like noticing I remember noticing that thing like it was away from me it wasn't wow. something that I felt like I should do anything about but it was then later I kind of remembered that in that process and kind of went oh yeah <laughs> And then it was and until, I would say, early 2021, where you decided that now was the time for you to leave Unlimited behind as well. Yeah. What was the thinking there? That I suppose there, I was, didn't have, there wasn't any work that I was doing with Unlimited and hadn't been for at least a year. Well, at least a year, more than a year, because we'd been in lockdown for, a, in and out of lockdown for a year. Yeah. And running Civic Digits was a full-time job. So that was basically it. I'd set up a company which had become more than a full-time job. 
And viable and, at a time during lockdown where everything else is just yeah, <laughs> stopping. Yeah, and it was we were able to remake in a technologically innovative way. We were able to make the show and get it out to our audiences and for it to be meaningful. So it just like on a it was, it was really practical. Yeah, there, there wasn't any more time. And alongside the really practical decision making, as, as we get older as well, and as you become parents, certainly it's like those very practical decisions become much easier to make, right? And maybe maybe easier also because of lockdown, because okay. there was all of that time and space where you weren't working or yeah. meeting up or doing this bit or that bit. So there was a kind of a period of kind of isolation mm -hmm. from Unlimited, which meant that it wasn't such a big step yeah. because it'd been imposed already. And how do you feel about Unlimited now? Like, what's your relationship with the idea of or the company that is Unlimited? Um, I just don't know, really. I suppose it's like, it was my growing up. I learned a lot, a lot of things, tried a lot of things. I was thinking this morning, I was showering and thinking about today. Have you seen um, Daisy and the Six? No. The premise of it is there's this rock band in the 70s and in the 90s somebody's going around interviewing all of the members and so you find out what the story was of their you know sub, you know their rise to fame and their moment of glory and you know this kind of cultural moment that they created and it's told through the voices of the members of the band doing interviews and I was thinking about this and thinking about how this could be that and that that was kind of quite interesting. It would make quite an interesting radio play. As a f well, the first thought was, oh, this would make a really interesting radio play. And I was like, oh, no, it's already been done. It's Daisy and the Six. <laughs> um, so the reason why I'm saying that is, is because I was thinking about what I learned about collaboration in the process of being part of Unlimited and how I think that's really interesting. I can, it continues to be really useful, even if it's something probably that I'm not that interested in anymore. <laughs> and I feel like I've kind of, you know, done it to do. Well, see, I say that, but then I'm always doing collaborations. So. You're a really good collaborator. I think you're always the best at it out of all of us, that you were the most. I don't know that you would know this actually, but I feel like you were always able to really clearly express who, what you would want to do, how you. Let me start that again. I think you've always been the best at that collaboration because you would bring all of yourself to it and also have always been really generous at allowing other people to to come into that as well. And you're very good at fighting the battles that you want to fight and not getting involved with battles you don't want to fight or don't need to fight, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I tried very hard. <laughs> But I think what I learned was is that I want to be the boss, <laughs> well, actually. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not going to apologise for that anymore. Good on you. And you should never have had to if you ever felt like you did. Well, that you'll remember that, well, you may not remember, but I'm going to say it. Do it. That um, when we were having that meeting in Soho, that was, we, we talked a lot about Me Too because Me Too was happening mm -hmm. that year. Mm-hmm. And I think that was quite significant for me, that moment of Me Too, where I thanked my lucky stars that I had never been abused in the ways that 
those women have been abused that launched that movement. But it allowed me to sort of think more broadly and widely about all of that stuff. I kind of reignited my feminism. So that became sort of like very central to civic digits and also becoming a mum at the same time mm. and having to just go, what do you need to do? Because there's only enough time to do what you need to do. And there's nothing else. Come on, Claire. <laughs> because that was the year that I took the idea of um, doing a show to the Lyceum, for example. And I wouldn't have tried to do that if it hadn't been for me too. Okay. Like it gave me that feeling like there was an open, a more open door that a man in charge of a large prestigious venue would listen to a mm -hmm. woman because there was that moment of, ha, we haven't actually got any women doing anything here. Or we have now, but we historically there have been no women here mm. on this stage, which is true. Which I'd kind of, I think, I think I'd become a bit inured to, and then I got like inured to. What do you mean by inured? Uh, inured is when you live for so long next door to a glue factory that you stop noticing that it smells of horses' bones yeah. being melted down. Since you were talking about, you know, that you learn about collaboration, but what is one thing? you learned specifically from your experience of setting up and working with Unlimited that you'd offer as advice to anyone thinking of or in the early stages of setting up their own company now? <laughs> this guy in the background singing. Um, what, would, what advice would I give to somebody who wanted to set up their own company now? That you learned as a result of? That I learned as a result of being part of Unlimited. Mm. Um, gosh, so many things. You can have more than one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think of what's kind of like core to it. I guess, oh, I don't know, it's hard. There's different ways of thinking about it. It's kind of like the success of Unlimited, I think, was because we just threw ourselves into it completely and wholeheartedly, sort of to destruction in some ways, because that was... Like, it wasn't Unlimited's fault that I had ME, but it was a combination of Unlimited and the work that I was doing with the LGBTQ group and also having a virus, you know. It's kind of like throwing yourself into something to destruction will often bear fruitful results. Sort of at the other end of Unlimited, I think knowing why you're doing it, having like a really cheesy ass mission statement it's useful it's really useful having a strong sense of why you're doing what you're doing because it's something you can always sort of go back to and I think really why we were doing Unlimited was because we just wanted to mm -hmm. from the beginning it was like we just really want to and we kind of struggled to define what Unlimited was as a company because the honest truth was at least for the first six, seven years, that it was because it's us. It's because it's us and we, we, this is what we have to do. It felt like, you know, we were on a mission to, to do it. And it was very hard to define. So when I look at other companies like um, the brilliant Rash Dash that we worked with, oh, that was one of the ones that we worked on together post oh, 17 future bodies, future bodies. Yeah, that was pretty that was that was I good that, show, yeah. that was a really good show um so yeah so if you look at the brilliant rash dash there's a really clear 
sense of why they're making the art beyond the fact that it's the two of them like it is the two of them mm -hmm. and that's really strong and also it's the feminism and it's the bodies and it's the you know they've they've got a very strong vision and i suppose unlimited sort of grew that in the sort of direction of we do science and i think that became kind of like the the way that probably most outside people would have seen and then it was sort of had sort of a non anonymous can't say that word. <laughs> Go on. Odd things. <laughs> Sticky outy things. <laughs> I can't say that word. Um, Money the Game Show doesn't fit inside Unlimited as a mission. If, if the mission of Unlimited is to make theatre about science, Money the Game Show should never have been made by Unlimited. It was made by Unlimited because it was already a successful show and I was a member of Unlimited, so it was available to be made and also it fits like i think just this is what you're saying it's really interesting that it was just us and i think because there's a there were six of us which is a lot mm. of people yeah so i think that makes it harder like with abby and helen at rash dash they are really good friends and artists that have worked together forever and have very uh similar and shared world views that mm -hmm. they can really quickly gather around but if you're trying to work out between six of you six 20 year olds why are you all doing this forms, um, including all... the twin yeah what yeah well, that's i've never thought of that i mentioned that with paul that we're all firstborns and even the one of us that's a twin was the first one out <laughs> but it's difficult isn't it i remember yeah, talking about that that's what's so difficult you don't want to gather around one thing because but i do remember us talking about what are the things we tried but do you remember when we started that meeting that we had at high but wherever the breakfast place was. Mm -hmm. And we did have a conversation, you've reminded me now, which was about the why. Mm -hmm. or what do we want the work to be about? And there yeah. wasn't much that anyone was into, apart from you were very clear, I want to continue to make work that centers women, that is about female experience. And we were all like, great, that's a clear thing that we can absolutely include in the mission statement going forward. And I've always really loved that it was, Know, three boys three girls as we were then that there is an equality inside there that we've always worked really hard to make sure that there was an equality certainly in terms of gender representation on um in shows and in stages and all that sort of stuff so i suppose there was that that was definitely part of what we were carrying forward but you're right it's not like maybe you were the only person that had a clear idea of what it was you wanted to <laughs> why you wanted to be making it all yeah but like we weren't a feminist theater company and like you say you know wanted that to be included but it wasn't leading no liz and lou never really wanted to or never seemed to come forward with ideas around kind of like wanting to make something that you know as brilliant as they are i made a lot i made quite a bit of stuff with lou like chris was writing paul wanted to direct you wanted to direct i didn't In, i wanted to act oh did you i was sort of forced into directing at some stage when paul left yeah the point being, what you're learning is the thing that you're offering as a, a learning is just do it. The main, so what do I was it say if was, you want to do it yeah. and you'll figure it out. And or it's if, useful to have a clear mission. If you have a reason, if you have any reason for doing it yeah. beyond just wanting to, that is really useful. Even if it's quite broad, right? I remember someone saying, because we used to actually say on a mission statement, we're not trying to change the world. And someone said, why not and i remember that being really oh right okay and we changed the mission statement to we are trying to change the world even a little bit mm -hmm. for the better yeah but you wrote that even yeah a little i bit think i did write better. that yeah
And even having something as broad as that, it means that it focuses you on, well, how do we want to change the world? Who for? What about? Yeah. And I think with every project, and that's why I think Money the Game Show fits inside Unlimited. It's because it's you. Yeah. So your, you and your personality and your intellect and vibrancy is something that is very unlimited. And also making a show that's a bit strange and formally innovative about the global financial crisis in order to hopefully improve an understanding of how that works and maybe affect things even in a little way that means that going forwards we have a better, slightly better version of the world because we don't do that again. That would be bad. I think that fits and I think it's all right to feel your way through that sometimes. Yeah. It's easier with a mission statement. It is. I would say, having done it, because Civic Digits is really clear, mm. and it feels, maybe it's the personality thing, maybe it's a, you know, a preference, a personal preference thing. I find it much easier to, to create a company that has a clear reason for being in the world and what it does and how, and how it's trying, and, and the way that it's trying to do that, than being an artist in the world that's being perceived as, oh, you do this sort of thing, or you do that Mm. sort of thing, because the two things are actually the same, but one is me and the other one is a company. And it's much healthier and easier and more comfortable for me to promote really hard civic digits. And it's really uncomfortable for me to promote as hard Claire Duffy. Mm. And that might be quite a gendered thing. Like that might be, like the kind of, you know, again, going back to the Me Too and that sort of rebirthing of feminist perspective of being culturally conditioned to not promote yourself in the way that boys, and particularly boys from certain backgrounds, are. Because I saw it because I went to a private boys' school for my A-levels. You know, how you're taught to promote yourself, and that's mm. just what you do. Like, why wouldn't you? because that's how you get on in the world, where you're not taught to do that as a girl. Mm. So it's much easier for me to make civic digits because it knows what it is. I don't know who I am. I'm a million different things all at the same time. And I think maybe that's the trick. That was the the difficulty with having six people who all didn't know who they were and all (laughs) were a million different things all at the same time and couldn't really commit to any, like, this is who we are. Yeah, yeah. And also just by being together and being a company kind of made that a little bit clearer because people would still ask, so who's the leader? Who's who's the thing that we really want to be paying attention to? I think you go, well, it's, it's not, it's the company. The whole yeah, point is this. Three company. boys who really want to be seen as the leader of it and three <laughs> girls kind of making it happen. <laughs> is that how you perceive it? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> it's interesting because I've always thought of you and Lou and Liz being the real driving force inside there in so many ways, like in terms of actually making things happen and bringing clarity actually to a lot of things. Um, is there anything else that, you, you know, when you were standing in the shower this morning thinking about Daisy and the Six or <laughs> knowing that I was coming up and that, you know... No, I think, I think that's it. One of the things that I always found interesting about looking back on the sort of history of Unlimited was that those first three years, we started it in 97 and I met Valerie in 2000, who's now my wife. Those three years, I remember being with Valerie, it being our 10th anniversary and me thinking, oh my God, 
I feel like like those past 10 years went so quick, much quicker than those first three years of Unlimited. Like it felt like those first three or four years of Unlimited was so intense and everything was about that. Mm -hmm. That was definitely Paul's, I think Paul and I were agreeing. There was no separation. <laughs> like talk about a lack of work-life balance. It was... And boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> what we would now refer to as boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> but it was you're right it was really intense like living working playing doing everything it was like being in a band together, what i yeah. imagine being in a band is like without the music yeah and we were young it's different as you become older isn't it and there are more relationships involved and other priorities and yeah well i suppose for me it was like all my life really it's kind of like a constant process of like oh my god I could I can do that but I think that feeling of not knowing whether you could whether you could do something I think that was the really you know coming out of essentially being in education from the age of four to <laughs> 22 and then for me coming out that year yeah so it was just it was like you know it's so formative and like I've also discovered recently that you're your growing brain doesn't stop really growing until your mid-20s. Yeah, 24, 25, isn't it? Yeah, which was definitely not something that was known at that point. So, yeah. like, if you're talking, we were talking about counselling earlier, you're talking about formative experiences that can shape your life. Those formative experiences can go up to your mid-20s in terms of brain development. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that resonates hard for me. I'm really grateful for that time in particular, for meeting all of you guys and for the amount of learning that I did and the amount of wisdom, the amount of experience or different experience and support actually from everyone and being around everyone, the gang, the band part of it. I don't think a lot of people probably get that. It can be very lonely, can't it? Working. Yeah. Yeah, it can. Definitely. Shall I press stop? Yeah. So that is that for now. I hope you've enjoyed listening to these conversations with my co-founders as much as I've enjoyed having them and then editing them. It's been a real trip with these beautiful humans and I'm so deeply grateful to each of them for their love and care and artistry and friendship that has lasted for such a long time already. There might be some other episodes we release from other conversations I've had and recorded, but for now, this is it. It's time to move, focus on the next and the new things in our lives. Thank you for being here with me, and for your messages, and your memories, and words of kindness and love while you've followed along. We're playing out with a track from The Giant and the Bear, again written by David Edwards. It's called Bear in the space and it's gorgeous isn't it you can listen to all the music that's been made for the shows by searching up unlimited theater on whatever streaming platform you subscribe to or by visiting the website where everything is archived photos scripts videos and music unlimited.earth thank you for coming to the shows we really are very glad that you and we could make them. <laughs> <laughs>